0: Today on Something You Should Know, can sadness actually make you sick? Not in the way you probably think. Then the strategies that help you project competence and confidence. Eye
1: contact, very interesting uh, research project because eye contact is very effective when you're talking. But if I'm listening, it's actually better for me if I don't look at you. Why? It will turn me into a low status, uh, like a servant looking at my master to take commands.
0: Plus, what makes a food a comfort food? And some answers to some fascinating questions of everyday life. Like what time is it in the North Pole? Or why does a whip crack?
2: You basically have the heavy end of the whip transmitting its energy to the lighter end of the whip and the energy is turning into velocity. And you get to the point where you can actually exceed the speed of sound with the velocity of the very tip. So there's a mini
0: sonic boom. All this today on Something You Should Know. something you should know fascinating intel the world's top experts and practical advice you can use in your life today something you should know with mike carruthers it is the most wonderful time of the year at least that's according to the lyrics of the song but a lot of people find themselves unhappy around the holidays And it's long been believed that unhappiness can make you sick and lead to a shorter lifespan. But more recent research says that that long-standing belief is flawed. It has mixed up cause and effect. In other words, being sick can make you unhappy, but unhappiness doesn't make you sick, nor does it shorten your lifespan. Yes, there's a link between a shorter lifespan and being unhappy, but the link is not direct. For example, unhappiness can lead people to smoke or drink or take drugs, and those things can lead to an early death. But unhappiness in and of itself does not. The research looked at data from the Million Women Study, which has tracked British women since 1996, and after discounting those who were sick to start with, they were left with 720,000 women and showed conclusively that unhappiness cannot and does not cause illness or early death all by itself. And that is something you should know. We all like to think that we're good at what we do and that other people notice how good we are at what we do. But in fact, that often isn't the case. The people who get noticed, the people who get promoted, the people who get asked to collaborate and move up Those people do something different besides just hope they get noticed. And you're about to find out what that is and how to do it. Jack Nasher is the founder of the Nasher Negotiation Institute. He's a professor at the Munich Business School and a visiting faculty member at Stanford. And he's author of a book called Convinced, How to Prove Your Competence and Win People Over. Hi, Jack. Thanks for being here.
1: Well, thank you very much, Mike. Thanks for having me.
0: So we all want to be perceived as competent and good at what we do. So it seems to make sense that we should be competent and good at what we do. So why isn't why isn't that enough? What else do we have to do for people to notice and say, "Wow, this person is really outstanding"?
1: Well, um, yeah, I mean, in the first place, you you just have to realize that uh, you know being good has has very little to do with with how you're perceived you know this explains a lot this explains why you have some colleagues or you know some competitors are actually worse than you but more successful because and people think that wow you know they're fantastic they're great and the question of course the obvious question is well what what counts then Uh, if it's not you know the result of our work what counts you know with about a thousand studies you know, a, a clear picture forms of how an expert behaves, how an expert talks, speaks, moves him or herself that really makes a difference. For instance, the distance, I mean, really how far you're away from somebody really affects uh, how, you know, if, if you are uh, perceived as being competent or not competent. Uh, and and that's, that's really amazing because obviously distance has, you know, nothing to do with your actual competence.
0: Well right I mean who would have thought that that someone would perceive you as competent depending on how far away they are standing from you but so so what's the right distance
1: 4 to 5 feet was uh, which is 1.2 to 1.5 meters is the optimal distance 4 to 5 feet is uh, a distance where you're perceived as being most competent. And yeah, it was a very boring study conducted with thousands or hundreds of people where they would just you know sit them or stand them next to each other and see if the you know the per- perception is different according to, to the distance. And uh, lo and behold, it was. So we have a very very clear number four to five feet, and it really makes a difference. Now, if you see politicians uh, talk to some uh, you know uh, journalists, and you always see that that distance, and that's ob- that's not a coincidence.
0: So, I think people have a sense that confidence is very important in projecting competence and looking like you're good at what you do, but, but maybe don't understand exactly how it works. So, talk about confidence.
1: You know, people trust others who they perceive to be confident. People who are confident are perceived as being more competent, uh, are being perceived as leaders. Now, if, uh, you know, you, you never see a politician. Um, during a campaign ponder about subjects the politician is always very certain about what to do about a certain problem even though that's nonsense because he or she doesn't know how you know a certain plan of action will uh, affect world peace or will affect the economy because you know these systems are so complex and yet they show certainty uh, to such an extent that you know, once you know something about the topic, because I, you know I worked for the UN as a junior diplomat, and once you know about the complexity of the issues, it's laughable, because it's impossible. You know, a- everyone who really knows what he or she is talking about would say, "Well, you know, this could happen, probably. This could happen. I'm not sure. Let's try, but you know, we can't guarantee." But no, nobody would elect such a politician, and that's the problem. We look for people, so you can't blame them. We look for a politician. We look for leaders who show us certainty in the midst of uncertainty.
0: So if you don't know the answer, do you fake it?
1: Well, that's that's a good question. Uh, I mean, honestly, let's look at uh, Donald Trump. In his campaign, obviously, he didn't have any political track record. And, uh, you know, the only thing he always said was that he was great. He's fantastic. He's the best. That's it. And I thought, well, you know, this confidence, you know, it can go quite far, but not that far. He's not going to get away with that or even win with that. Well, I was wrong, obviously. And, you know, that's, that's how far it can actually go and how far it can take you right to the Oval Office.
0: So what is confidence? What is it you project so that people say, oh, well, th- that guy's got confidence?
1: Confidence is, you know, the way you talk, that, that you have to know. It's the way you talk about tasks uh, at hand, uh, that you're very optimistic about your tasks. It's also the way you move. Lots, lots of studies have shown that if you show confidence in your posture, how you stand, how you sit, you will be perceived as more competent as a leader. Your language, and there's something called power talking, uh, found by actually a feminist uh, researcher that uh, she analyzed the language patterns of men and women and she found that women tend to use a, a low-power language they tend to be overly polite they tend to use question tags they tend to um, make statements sound like questions by raising their voice at the end of the sentence like that and it, it sounds kind of polite and nice and cute but it's not good if you want to project competence so again here you have to use a technique called power talking that shows confidence in your statements. So when you make a statement, it very clearly sounds like a statement and not like a question. Okay. So when I say confidence, it's not that easy because it's the, about the way you talk. It's about uh, what, you know in terms of uh, power talking. It's what you say when you talk. It's your uh, posture when you sit, when you stand.
0: But I think when people think about confidence they think about it's a feeling, I feel confident. And it sounds like what you're saying is regardless of how you're feeling you need to project that confidence w- with those techniques.
1: You know, the, the very first person you have to convince mm-hmm. is yourself. And that's that you do by a um, technique called priming. Priming means that you, know, you have to get yourself in a state of confidence. Well, how do you do that? Well, you do that like good athletes. Before important games, tennis players watch um, video clips of their best matches. So, you know, you have to get in that state where you look at your successes. So, you know, what I tell my, uh, because I, you know, I give seminars usually on negotiation, but, you know, know, what we practice is that remember your greatest success. And I ask people, well, what was your greatest success? You know, stand up in in front of everybody here. What was your, you know, what are you really good at? What, you know, why should anyone be led by you? Now, the problem is if you can't answer these questions, how would you convince other people that you know they should follow you? How should you convince other people that you're actually good? So the very first thing you have to do is to convince yourself to be in this state of mind, to think about your successes, to think about what you're really good at. And it's only then that you can effectively communicate your competence by showing confidence. Otherwise, you will feel like a fraud.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the nonverbal ways to project that competence and confidence.
1: Smiling, for instance. Um, Interesting research conducted on smiling. Now, the good news is you just don't have to smile a lot at all. As a matter of fact, smiling can make you look like an imbecile, like an idiot. Because especially if it's not fitting. So you don't have to smile. Just smile when something is funny. Now, that probably sounds like common sense to you. But, you know, a lot of people learn well you always have to smile, Well, you don't. That's a kind of good news because it will make you look like a low status salesperson. So uh, in that sense actually it's it's you know only smile when you feel like it you don't have to. eye contact very very interesting uh, research project which surprised me because eye contact is very effective when you're talking and you know and I'm looking at you when I'm talking. but if I'm listening it's actually better for me if I don't look at you. why? because again, it will turn me into a low status, uh, like a servant looking at my master to take commands. But so if you talk to me and I look away, of course, I have to be careful not to be rude. By looking away, by pondering, uh, you know, look, kind of looking in the air and thinking about what you're saying, that's fine. That's actually good. That's effective. So when somebody's talking to you, don't keep eye contact. Look around, you know, look at other people. Look back. Not So you're not rude. But when you're making a point, don't be shy. Look them straight in the eye. It makes it. Very, very big difference.
0: So something I've noticed is how gestures can seem to make or break your image of competence. And I want to ask you about that in just a moment. So Jack, let's talk about gestures and how important they are in projecting your competence.
1: I was giving a talk a few years ago and it was filmed. So they told me, you know, you have to stand there. The light is here. Just don't move a lot. And what happened was I was just standing there. Uh, because I was scared, you know, I wouldn't be on the picture, so I didn't move at all. I, so I and, and I gave the same talk I, I I'd given a couple of hours earlier, and there was almost no audience reaction. And I was I was thinking why? I mean, it was verbatim; it was the same talk, the same slides, everything was the same, but I was standing there, and it just didn't work. And uh, there was an interesting uh, experiment conducted um, comparing the movement, uh, and the result was very clear. It was called the Doctor Fox experiment. Uh, where they had a fake Dr. Fox giving a nonsensical talk. But when he moved with great enthusiasm, wow, what a difference that was. All of a sudden, he was perceived as being so much more competent, uh, interested in his own subject and so on, and so much more competent. He got great ratings, even though it was an audience who should have known that there was utter nonsense. But all he did was... um, well, it was an actor, so he was, you know, moving around and and uh, seemingly really, you know, like Steve Jobs kind of, really into what he had and loving uh, the, the, the topic seemingly. It was all fake. It was all fake. Here we go again. Uh, and yet it worked. So move around, you know, show real enthusiasm when it's uh, when it comes to your topic. And that actually does make a tremendous difference. And again, it was surprising to me because I thought, well, if I stand there, and I just talk and, you know, all the attention is on my talk is actually better. But it wasn't. I'm wrong. I, you know, I was, I was totally wrong.
0: Hey, a shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You see, I'm what you call a seasonal allergy sufferer. Stuffy nose, watery eyes. If you have seasonal allergies, you know what I'm talking about. I don't sleep as well because I'm all stuffed up. Food doesn't taste as good. Luckily, though, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Now, I know people with allergies who just, you know, they just live with it. And, well, that's a strategy. But why? If there's relief, why not try it? Claritin D is designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill – that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Everyone in my house who has allergies takes Claritin-D. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin-D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin-D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount. So, you can live claret and clear. Use as directed. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. And so, I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Talk about uh, likability. That's one of those things that it's hard to put your finger on, but we we all know what likability is when we see it. But how do you do it?
1: The good news is that we're pretty good at being likable. You know, we're pretty bad at making a competent impression. You know, there was an experiment conducted when they told people, please, you have five minutes to talk to somebody, be likable. And people were, you know, reasonably good because they were just, you know, nice, they were polite and they were interested and so on. Most of the techniques, you know, because of common sense. But there are some things that are probably more interesting um, than other, you know, that aren't aren't that clear. And one thing I, I just want to tell you is that, if you don't like somebody and you have to deal with them, and that happens, um, you, know, I've, I, and, you know, I'm a negotiation advisor. So you know, most negotiations fail because people don't like each other. They say, "Well, you know, we're an idiot. How, you know, why is he or she working there and whatever?" But you can't change it. So I'm just telling you, you don't have to suck up to them. But the least thing you can do is to show respect, because you can't convince anyone of anything if they feel that you don't respect them. So. Um, again, you don't have to fake anything for that. You just have to find something, anything that you would respect about that person. It can be the shoes, the haircut, what he or she said. It doesn't matter. Just find something and think about that.
0: But doesn't sucking up help? Doesn't praising people and telling them how great they are, doesn't that make them like you more?
1: It does, yeah. Edward E. Jones from Princeton University did 40 years of research on the topic, and I, and I just gave you uh, in a nutshell what what you know, he what, what uh, found. And, yes, as a matter of fact, uh, to ingratiate yourself, to uh, build how he calls it a reservoir of goodwill early on, um, making compliments. But you have to be specific. Don't just say, great job. That's empty talk. Just say, you know, I really liked it how you presented, the, you know, use the slides and the presentation. I, I liked that a lot. Very nice, a specific compliment, not not just, you know, great. And be reluctant when you give a compliment. So, for example, yeah, you probably don't want to hear this, but, you know, I really have to say blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, these are some tools as well, absolutely.
0: What about how do you convince someone that you're competent when... It's a maybe they know that you've done something that didn't go very well, that you've got a reputation because something you did screwed up or whatever. How do you dance around that?
1: Oh, yeah, that's a you know important topic because, of course, we do screw up here and there, you know, screw ups happen, but you know, some people seem to get away uh, with the biggest screw up, and the question is why. And um, we can use an effect called the halo effect for that. And the idea is quite simple that if you have a you know, have good news. Um, You have to associate yourself with the good news as much as possible because, you know, the halo effect is basically the power of association to, uh, you know, uh, to to, to sum it up. Um, So if, if we have good news, we want to associate ourselves with it as much as possible. So if you have good news, stand up, be in the center of the room, talk about it as much as possible. You can give credit to thousands of people. It doesn't matter because you're the one standing there. People remember you. You will be associated with the good news. And the same if you have bad news, do the opposite. Um, you know, just stay seated. You can take all the responsibility, but just kind of don't be in the picture. And then immediately redirect. Redirect the bad news to good news. So instead of just saying, oh, I, you know, I made this mistake, that mistake, this and blah, blah. I'm sorry. I'm so, you know, I'm, And by the way, you know, I also sucked at that two years ago. I did this and I know what you should do is. And that's every PR agent crisis communication. That's what they what they will tell companies. First thing you do, admit, accept responsibility this takes you probably 30 seconds then immediately shift to the learnings immediately tell them what you learned immediately tell them what's going to happen from now on and what you will do, do from now on so you can turn bad news into an advertisement showing that wow you know you're responsible and also you learned a lot this will never happen again because of a b c d and so on okay so and then you stand up because again People will remember the positive things about your presentation because you stand up. You're associated with them.
0: What's an example of something you see people do wrong over and over again?
1: Modesty is a huge mistake. You know, modesty concerning your core abilities. You know, people saying, oh, you know, it worked out. I was just lucky or, you know, I was just there at the right time. You know, if you say that, you get a laugh and people will think, wow, you know, modest uh, person. But it will... Destroy your perceived competence. You should never do that.
0: It is interesting that you know when you say modesty is is a mistake, and yet we're told not to brag. We're told we we're, we we learn growing up that we you know shouldn't just keep the yeah. uh, the spotlight on ourselves. Well, but it,
1: yeah, we learn that the world is fair. You know that's what we learn. We learn that you know work hard and you know you you will be successful, and that's just not true. It's all it's nonsense. And of course, if I could change the world, we say, you know, everybody should get what he or she deserves. But we don't get what we deserve. We, we get what we negotiate. Right. You know, it's just, what is that? And, and the question is, how do we react to that? And, you know, sometimes as a, a business psychologist, you know, I see phenomena. I think, wow, you know, we're so irrational. It's unbelievable. But what can I do? You know, there's nothing I can do about it. We, I can't change uh, our, our modus operandi that's been uh, programmed in our brain for the last, you know, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of years. You just can't do that. You know, that's how we are.
0: I remember, you know, when I was young, one of my first jobs and I I grew up believing what you just said that, you know, you work hard and that's what helps. And, and then I saw, I, I worked for a guy who, who couldn't have been more incompetent if he tried, but he always came out, looking like a smelling like a rose he had the ability to get jobs but he didn't necessarily have the ability to do the job because people liked him people kept promoting him people ke- i thought wait a minute there's something here there's something to this
1: yeah it happens all the time i mean you know once you realize that you will and, and that's you know it really helped me because you know it's kind of like you and I. i was sometimes i was really depressed because i thought the world is just so unfair you know and, and, uh, and then I figured, well, either I'm going to, you know, be depressed for the rest of my life, or really I'm going to do something about it, because it's like JFK once presumably said, the world is not fair, but not necessarily to your disadvantage. And that made all the difference, and then I thought, okay, let's just, you know, live with it and just make the best of it, the best
0: for ourselves. I know there are people who are skeptical about this, that projecting competence and confidence isn't as important as being competent and confident. And you have the story of the, of the violin player, which helps to drive your point home, that you, you can't expect people to see your competence just by looking, that you need to make them pay attention.
1: The story of Joshua Bell, uh, the greatest violin player uh, probably of our times, and he went uh, to play uh, at, um, at a metro station in D.C. a few years ago, and they thought that people would stop, people would go crazy, because even if they're uneducated, if they know nothing about classical music, they would just no- notice that this is a genius at work. And, uh, you know, what happened? Nothing happened. No- not a single person. It was like, I think, 42 minutes or so. Not a single person stopped. Nobody. And that, to me, was just mind-blowing. And, but, again, you know, illustrating that you can be the best and nobody cares. Nobody notices. You can die the best who's ever lived and nobody will know. Nobody will care. You have to, you know, take care people know that you are good. And if you don't do it, nobody else will.
0: And I love that story because it it so proves your point. Because that violin player in a concert hall with those very same people sitting in the audience would be applauding and on their feet and yelling, you know, bravo and genius and everything else. But in a subway station, eh, you know, because so much of what people think of us is, like it or not, how you dress it up and how you project it. And and that's such a great story. Jack Nasher has been my guest. His book is Convinced, How to Prove Your Competence and Win People Over?, You will find a link to his book in the show notes. Thanks, Jack. Appreciate you being here.
1: Well, thank you very much. Thanks for your interest.
0: So I think it's human nature as you travel through life. Interesting questions just pop into your head. It seems that's how the brain works. What time is it in the North Pole? Why are the windows on ships typically round and not square? Why are the numbers on a telephone keypad in a different order than the numbers on a calculator keypad? Well, you could look up the answers to these questions, but you probably never do. However, Ivan Semenek, who is a science reporter, he has looked up the answers and a few others. A few years ago, he, along with New Scientist magazine, released a couple of books that explored these questions, which came from readers of the magazine. One of the books is called, Why Don't Penguins' Feet Freeze? And Ivan joins me to discuss some of these questions. Hi Ivan, so let's start with the title. Why don't penguins' feet freeze, or or really any animal, even dogs or cats. I mean, animals don't wear shoes and their feet come in direct contact with snow and ice and other cold surfaces. so, So why don't they freeze?
2: Well, penguins have a particularly tough time of it, more so than dogs and cats, which would probably, you know, on a very cold night, dogs and cats would probably find a way to keep their toes warm just by keeping them curled up. But uh, penguins, you know, they have to go marching out there on the ice and snow. And the way they do it is with a very uh, highly adapted uh, circulation system to their feet, very small blood vessels, very rapid circulation flow. Uh, which minimizes the heat loss and, uh, and minimizes any heat loss to the core body temperature while keeping the blood flowing through the feet very very efficiently. So it's all, it's all down to fluid, the, the pump system, I guess, with the feet.
0: Here's one you tackle that I think is a universal experience uh, that's pretty interesting, and that is, wh- why does a light bulb... When it burns out, almost always burn out at the moment when you turn it on. Why doesn't it ever just blow out by itself? And occasionally I've seen light bulbs do that, but almost always when a light bulb burns out, it's when you first flip it on.
2: Basically, the the short version of the answer is that uh, resistance, electrical resistance is related to temperature. So the lower the temperature, the less resistance and if the temperature goes up, the more electrical resistance there is in a wire. So the filament of the light bulb, when it's cold, when it's been off for a while, is when the resistance to electricity is the least. So at the moment you flip it on, that's when the highest current can go surging through the filament, and then as the filament warms up, the current actually drops a bit because the resistance is going up. So that it's that surge of current at the very beginning that if there's a weakness in the filament, that's when it's going to get kicked, and and it'll break at that point.
0: Yeah, I remember reading somewhere that it was in some firehouse somewhere that they had left a light bulb on, and it burned for like 40 years because they never turned it off, it and, then, and therefore never had to turn it back on again. And it just kept going.
2: Yeah, it's probably better for the light bulb to, of course it's not very good for the environment to just keep the lights on all the time, but it certainly explains, there's no doubt that lights are on, uh, sort of more stressed, uh, or incandescent lights anyway, are more stressed at the moment you're turning them on.
0: You see this with kids a lot, and that is, you know, when they're concentrating or they're trying to do something, they're writing or they're drawing or something, they stick their tongue out. And I wonder, well, why, do, why do people do that?
2: Yeah, this is a really interesting question. and I think it's one of those where we could still stand to have more answers. So we, we've got a couple of different answers to this question. It definitely has to do with uh, focusing on, you know, you, you, you bite your tongue when you're trying to focus on something else, you know, like, say, threading a needle, that sort of thing. And uh, it seems to be that, uh, you know, a large part of your brain is dedicated to some of these motor activities like speech, you know uh, there's a lot lot of neurons that control the tongue for example if you clamp down in your tongue in a sense you're suspending some of that activity and you you're reserving more uh you know for the thing you're trying to concentrate on for especially if you're doing a fine motor thing like threading a needle Having said that, I think there's sort of different behaviors going on. I know that uh, my daughter does this funny thing with her tongue where she's almost talking to herself. You can see her tongue moving around in there as she's concentrating on something. And my wife tells me I do the same thing. So it may have something more to do with you know, almost uh, communicating with yourself in a way, and maybe clenching the tongue uh, is a way of silencing that while you're trying to do a delicate job. So, hard to say, but I, I think that's kind of where, where the answer leads us.
0: Here's one I remember. <laughs> I remember always wondering about this when I was a kid. Why do whips crack when you do that thing with them? Why do they make that noise?
2: Well, the cracking whip is another lovely example of physics in action. Uh, the amazing thing about how a whip works is it's kind of this springy fiber, which gets narrower and narrower as you're going along the length. So you've got this fairly thick handle that's getting thinner and thinner and thinner. So as the energy is being transmitted down that long fiber, you basically have the heavy end of the whip transmitting its energy to the lighter end of the whip, and it's, it's essentially because there's less mass at that lighter end of the whip, the thinner end of the whip, the energy is turning into velocity. And you get to the point where at the very, very tip of the whip, you can actually exceed the speed of sound with the velocity of the very tip. So there's a mini sonic boom going on at the, at the very tip of the whip. It's actually breaking the sound barrier, you know, like a jet would, you know, flying uh, through the atmosphere, but it just happens to that tiny object, and it creates an incredibly loud noise for something so small.
0: I thought this question about sheep was pretty interesting, because uh, it's not something that I've witnessed a lot of. But when you you're driving in your car and you encounter a sheep on the road... What it typically does is it runs in a straight line ahead of you, like you're chasing the sheep. It doesn't get out of the way. It tries to run in front. And why would a sheep do that?
2: You know, if you're like me and you live in the city, uh, this, whole, this whole concept was new to me, but a lot of our readers uh, from around the world live in rural areas, and apparently this is a big problem with sheep. They Once they're in front of your car, they just, they just want to go in a straight line, uh, and they, they, they don't veer off to the side. So in fact the sheep are programmed to do this. They're actually doing a little bit of uh, mental arithmetic because sheep are evolved to escape from predators who might be chasing them, uh, you know, wolves that sort of thing and a sheep realizes that if uh if it keeps itself in front of the predator it's presenting the least target and it's also uh you know giving it its best chance to escape from a predator that's running after it the minute a sheep veers to the side it's exposing its flank to the predator as it's turning off to the side the predator can try to uh get closer to the sheep by kind of triangulating and and making a shorter distance and making a run for the sheep that way so the sheep know that it's smarter, mathematically better for them to just keep going in a straight line. You know, plus some of the kinds of places where sheep live, the roads often have, you know, high uh, slopes, that sort of thing, and and, uh, the sheep don't realize that the car isn't going to chase them up those hills, so they they continue on in that straight line, which apparently is very infuriating for people who live in these parts of the world.
0: This probably wreaks havoc with Santa's workshop, but what time is it in the North Pole if the North Pole is at the top of the Earth, theoretically, time doesn't change.
2: That's kind of a philosophical question, and that actually led to many, many answers. Uh, Of course, there's no real time at the North Pole. Uh, uh, You know, all the time zones uh, theoretically converge at that point. so it can essentially be any time you want. And people who are polar explorers, or who work in high polar regions, actually have to just... Go through the motion of selecting a time that makes the most sense for them it 's actually not that different from people living on the space station or if if there were astronauts on the moon, they would have to you know essentially live and eat and sleep by a time that they chose that that probably makes the most sense uh, to to sync up their activities with mission control so it 's somewhat similar at the Arctic or the Antarctic uh, Of course, a lot of our readers also weighed in on how this might affect Santa Claus and, and whether the fact that there's no real time at the North Pole, you know, does that somehow explain how Santa Claus can deliver gifts to all parts of the world at the same time at midnight all the time? Because it's, it's essentially midnight all the time at the North Pole or, or any other time you want it to be all the time. So there, there could be something in there uh, to explain the Santa Claus mystery.
0: Here's one I remember hearing about or thinking about, and that is uh, the air that I breathe. Who who has breathed it before? Uh, someone famous may have breathed the sa- same air I'm breathing.
2: I think that is such an amazing thing. And as it turns out, yes, it is. Uh, the number of atoms in your breath is uh, not unlike the... You know, the comparison between atoms and the amount of volume of air in, in your lungs is not that different from the amount of breaths uh, in, you know that there are in the Earth's atmosphere. And uh, if you just allow for the laws of diffusion uh, as those atoms spread around, you are almost certainly breathing breath that was breathed by Napoleon or Julius Caesar or Shakespeare or virtually any other human being uh, that ever existed on the face of the earth. It's, it's a remarkable thing. Uh, this is kind of by averaging it all out, of course. And if you go further, and, and I mean, it's also true for all, you know, there are extinct species you know, we're breathing the same air that the dinosaurs breathed long ago. And, and certainly some of the air that you take in every breath was air that at one point went through the body of a dinosaur.
0: A question I think a lot of people have wondered about in their lifetime when you look at a ship is, why are the, the portholes, the windows on a ship, why are they round?
2: Well, in fact, the, the roundness of windows on ships is something that's an artifact or, or is a byproduct of the switch from wooden to metal ships. Uh, you know if you look at uh pictures uh uh of those old tall ships of the past or or if you watch carefully uh you know master and commander or, or or some of those great naval films uh you don 't actually see any round windows in those wooden ships uh you know Wood is not very susceptible to fatigue it 's a very pliable um, uh durable material, so uh you know wooden windows can be any shape if you 're making them out of wood. But metal's a little different, because when you cut a rectangle or, or square into a piece of metal, uh, the metal is subject to more fatigue at those corner points. Uh, and, uh, you know, those are places where the metal can wear or tear more easily, and if the ship is under great stress, that would be a vulnerable location. So over the years, naval architects quickly learned that the roundness, uh, you know the roundness of those round windows uh, still preserve the most strength in the metal halls and that's uh, you know uh, traditionally where that shape comes from.
0: One of the questions one of your readers asked which I thought was kind of unusual was do the number of dead people outnumber the number of living people and I would have thought well of course I mean throughout all of human history all the people who have come and gone has to be much larger than all of the people who are here right now.
2: It depends on how you do the math, because if you're just sort of doing the straight, you know, accelerating population growth, in other words, if the population at all times in history was growing the way it's growing now, kind of doubling over the course of a human lifetime, uh, then for sure the living would very quickly outnumber the dead in short order. But uh, in fact, over historic time that 's not the way the population of the world has grown. In fact, there have been times when uh, the population of the earth has has barely budged, uh, you know and yet there have been plenty of deaths uh, accumulating over that time. It, you know humans lived under some very stressful conditions in the past so uh, there are some pretty good estimates for the populations of large parts of the world, of course, we don 't know for sure how many people were living in ancient times, you know, 5, 10,000 years ago. But over the course of human history, uh, you know, the estimates seem to suggest that probably by now about 60 billion people have lived on Earth. And, of course, there's about 6 billion of us now, so that would suggest that we're outnumbered uh, about 10 to 1 by by the dead. So we have uh, a long way to go.
0: One of the questions that I knew the answer to, but I'd still like to get you to talk about it, that I think is really interesting, is why, on a telephone keypad, the numbers 1, 2, and 3 are the top row. On a calculator, the numbers 1, 2, and 3 are across the bottom row. And why would they be different? Why, when they invented the keypad for the telephone, didn't they make it the same as the keypad for a calculator?
2: Well, we got one interesting answer to this question uh, from one of our readers. It has to do with, uh, uh, you know, the telephone and the calculator are two pieces of modern technology that come to us from from two different evolutionary tracks, you might say. The calculator is basically a descendant of the mechanical adding machine. And, you know, adding machines, and I still remember... uh, my parents had one of these adding machines, uh, you know, they ran a restaurant and they used it to add up their their bills at the end of the day. And those adding machines always had the zero at the bottom with the one and the two working upwards, so the the lowest numbers were were always at the bottom. And I think that has to do with, uh, statistically, you probably press the one and zero more if you're adding up uh, numbers, especially if you're adding up prices. Uh, and you keep those numbers close to the uh, the functions, you know, the add and subtract and equal signs and so on. The phone, completely different uh, history. Phones originally didn't have any numbers at all on them and then when they got the numbers, it was the big rotary phone where you had uh, the, the number indicated the number of clicks uh, as you were turning the dialing rotary phone. So the low numbers were at the top. You didn't have to turn the rotary very much to click one or two times. You had to turn it all the way around uh, to click uh, nine clicks, and then the zero actually uh was was put by the nine because it kind of uh, stands in for a ten basically so so uh, today, when you look at a digital phone it, uh, with the numeric keypad, it still keeps the lower numbers at the top and the ni- and the zero is down there by the nine
0: well, I always think it 's fun to to explore those questions that everybody wonders about but doesn 't know the answer to or or isn 't sure of the answer it 's always fun to to get the answer. Ivan Semenek has been my guest. He's a science reporter, and along with New Scientist magazine, released the book, Why Don't Penguins' Feet Freeze? And you'll find a link to that book in the show notes. There's a pretty good chance that this time of year around the holidays, you're eating some of your favorite comfort food. Maybe some foods you don't eat any other time of year. So what makes a food a comfort food? Well, the term comfort food was added to the dictionary in 1977 as food that comforts or affords solace. So any food can be a comfort food, and your comfort food can be and likely is different than mine. A study published in the journal Appetite found that the power of comfort food is based on the association that it calls to mind. So during times of stress or discomfort, people who have strong family relationships often reach for something that reminds them of those strong family relationships. Often those reminders come in edible form. This could explain why you want mashed potatoes or pizza in times of stress, which could help you recall memories of a family Thanksgiving or childhood pizza party. Another study found that chicken soup was considered a comfort food by people had strong emotional relationships. The stronger the relationship, the more satisfying the soup. So it's all about relationships you associate with food that makes it comforting, or not. And that is something you should know. Please take a moment and share this podcast with someone you know. I'm sure they would enjoy it as much as you do. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.